Hello, welcome to Smileys. Tonight we're joined by a very special guest. I am joined by Mora and uh, by author Ian Cameron Esselmont. Hello, Mora. Hello, sir. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Frankly, we don't have uh, we don't have very much in the way of uh, an interview question and whatnot. So this is mostly just going to be a conversation about um, writing, about life, about uh, the origins of Malaz, and generally a lot of um, very lighthearted conversation. We don't have a specific topic in mind, unless Mora does, which I don't. Um, <laughs> so, for the most part, I think Mora came prepared, more prepared than I did, with questions. For the most part, though, it's mostly just um, us talking. So, Mora, would you like to start? Oh, far away. Do you have anything to ask? So, uh, let me just start off, because I'm from India, and uh, I think Blood and Bone was like my absolute favorite among all six. So, I just wanted to ask you about the you know, all the Eastern influences that book has, because, you know, that was just uh, very special for me to read, like in fantasy. Oh, great. I'm, I'm really very uh, rewarded to, to hear that from you, because uh, I was a bit worried about the whole uh, uh, cultural crossover thing. You know, I did, did my best to evoke uh, a sort of another culture. And what I based it on was my experience living in Thailand, in, in Bangkok, and traveling for, like, I was <clears throat> teaching English in... Uh, Southeast Asia for four years uh, in Bangkok and in Japan. And my wife and I, we traveled extensively through uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, we meant to go only for one year, but we loved it there so much that we stayed for four. <laughs> uh, and that was the basis for Blood and Bone, the, um, <clears throat> the Southeast Asia, uh, Asian jungle and a lot of the cultural influences. No, because uh, the, the lived experience comes across, you know, because... Uh, Everything, even the smallest things. Like I, I noticed all these tiny details about the family structure and their food habits and things like that. And it just, it just made me so happy to see such things. It, it, oh, it has great. to come from experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that it resonated, as, uh, you know, and you recognize or saw, felt it as true. And uh, that's certainly you know, any author's goal. Uh, and I, I'm really rewarded to hear that from you. So thank you very much. <laughs> Lee, do you want to oh, ask something? Uh, what I did want to say about Lord and Bone is um, you mentioned in the acknowledgments, I think it was, right? Louder. I think you mentioned in the acknowledgments that um, you wanted to think about um, university, if I recall, about the myths of colonialism and imperialism. And I kind of wanted to ask, because uh, reading back to Golan and Thorn and all that tracking through a jungle, I wanted to ask if it was in any way influenced by Heart of Darkness, or because I've seen that analogy being brought up a lot as a fantasy version of Heart of Darkness, the novel. Uh, yeah, I, <clears throat> for, for that one, uh, in particular, I wanted to do a sort of a fantasy retelling of Heart of Darkness, um, because uh, there I was playing with themes and ideas of imperialism and colonialism, and uh, that's a, uh, just a, a fantastic text to delve into that area and to respond to in, in literature. And there's so much there, uh, and it was such a rich um, text to, to um, play with, and, and uh, all the thematics are there almost for any um, exploration of, of fantasy. It was it really uh, suited, I thought it suited the, uh, the, the project really, really well. Right. Um, so uh, do you still play uh, role-playing games and all? Oh, like I wish. <laughs> I wish I was. Um, but I'm a little bit isolated up here, um, and my all my time now, of course, for me, um, 
all that creative energy and uh, uh, fun um, has been shifted over to writing fiction. So it's my gaming time, if you will, is, is now it's my writing time. And, uh, and I try to keep it that much fun. So instead, I sort of am still gaming, but instead of doing it with a group and live around a table or, or online, <clears throat> I'm uh, doing it with characters in, in my fiction. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> Uh, on the topic of RPGs, well, on the topic, I did want to ask: Have you ever encountered mm-hmm. any difficulty in transferring the character that you envisioned in your mind or played onto text? Because I've tried it, and I would know from personal experience it's hard. So I can't imagine doing it on such a scale of like an entire series or like four entire series or whatever it is by now. I think I don't know. I mean, I think maybe it's it's um, Steve and our uh, and my uh, irreverence to like we just we don't care about the rules. That's fair. Yeah. You know, as I well, the rules say you can't do this. Well, screw the rules. We want to do it, so we <laughs> we just go ahead and do whatever we want. Uh, and it you know it may may or may not work in translation to uh, to fiction or, or to prose or to the world. Um, but, you know, we'll tinker with it until it does if if we want it. You know, so all, all the things we didn't want, we just left behind, didn't bother with. So feel free, feel free to invent and, and do whatever the heck you want. <laughs> so uh, I think I should ask you about uh, the update for uh, PTA. So because we have the fourth, we have a date for the fourth book now for Forge of High Mage. Yeah, I'm just um, they, they. I don't. I think they pushed it to the spring. I think. Uh, and uh, oh, I was. I would have liked to have seen something sooner than that, but um, that's just how it is. Um, so um, I think that's a quite a firm date. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's showing up on my <laughs> Amazon. So, yeah. uh, so it's going to be two more books. So it's a total of six books yes, in PTA now. Um, yeah, and uh, there are other tales of, of ascendancy that uh, I want to tell. Two more, and uh, then by that, by then, you know, um, we will be brought pretty close up to date, uh, historically speaking, to uh, Gardens of the Moon um, okay. because. Uh, I'm going sort of campaign by campaign, right. uh, and then then eventually we will get up to that, uh, and that's the goal anyway. And I hope we'll reach it. Um, um, I slowed down a bit on on this one, but the next one I think will uh, will will go faster. Okay, you have something, Lee? Uh, on this regard, not really. Well, what I did want to ask is there are sprinkled tales throughout the novels and the Book of the Fallen about um, the adventures of Kelvin and Dancer. One that comes to mind, for instance, beyond like Fowler and Seven Cities and uh, Genobarchus, one that comes to mind is their endeavors within uh, the realms of the Azath, which I believe will be tackled. I've not read the books yet. They're on my bookshelf. I'm waiting. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one that comes to mind is uh, Shalmur Zinn, actually. Because if I recall, you had that setting created for a separate campaign. Shalmorsen, yeah, yeah. Uh, and oh, it is rumored that they visited it once and then left and never returned. So I'm wondering <laughs> if such places will be revisited. Well, um, I've sort of dealt with um, Kelvin and, and Dancer uh, for the first three. Those were sort of their stories. And now I'm moving on to other, other characters and other tales and their, their ascendancy. Uh, their growth, their backstory, their growth, how things went in the campaigning. Uh, and so I've sort of moved on from them. Uh, but there are little anecdotes and bits like stuck in here and there. Right. So we will, we'll see them. 
uh, but they're not um, main characters, they're subplots. Yeah, because Kellenwood uh, <laughs> is, you know, is one of our favorites. So, uh, uh, any other books you're reading these days, like fiction, fantasy, nonfiction? Um, I'm reading um, fiction that is sort of applies to the current project that I'm working on. So it's and and I'm reading nonfiction and histories as well, uh, trying to feed the atmosphere uh, and uh, the culture that I want to try and look look at for for the current project. So the the current reading is all driven by that, uh, and uh, so it's not you know, and it's all a pleasure because I I pick tech books that uh, are very <laughs> that I really want to read and that I enjoy, uh, and and so I, those are the ones that I pull together uh, and look at in order to sort of give me um, grist for the mill, so to speak, uh, material to work with uh, and ideas and, and um, descriptions <clears throat> and even little cultural traits that um, I would think, oh, okay, I like that. I could maybe you alter it in a certain way so that it fits into Malaz. And, uh, so it's all material and, and background that I feeds, that feeds my uh, writing process. Lee, can I just take the next one? Yeah, sure. By all means. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you about all the sailing and the boat and all the marine uh, navigation things. Because uh, I think after reading <laughs> six books, we have some, you know, at least I won't be clueless. Uh, you know, so there, there are my Google search is like full of things like what is point to starboard mean? What does the rudder mean? And all that. <laughs> so uh, is this all from uh, your own experience or is it just like, you know, your, your mm. own interest or... Mm. Uh, how did you go about researching this? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, uh, I, I wish it was from my own experience, but sadly, it's not. I have no <laughs> personal experience at, at sea. That's So I, okay. it's all longing. It's all <laughs> wish fulfillment <laughs> or fantasy, <laughs> if you will. Uh, you know, right. um, it's, an, it's a whole nother culture, right, from top to bottom with its own vocabulary, its own attitudes. <clears throat> And so entering into that world is almost like entering into another culture for me. Uh, and I, I enjoy it very much. And, and a lot of the historical readings and fantasy, sailing uh, and, and boats and the rest, that's, it's unavoidable because if you wanted to get around, it is the best way to get around. Uh, overland travel is at that time or in those periods is very dangerous. Uh, and you would encounter warlords and brigands and, and uh, it would, uh, the merchants would have a much harder time getting across land than if they just piled into a boat. They could get along much easier. Uh, and so I want my books to reflect that. That, uh, Like nowadays, we don't have that in our culture so much uh, in the West. Uh, it's all air, airplanes. Right? But before that, it was all boats. I, I could have sworn you were, you, know, you were a sailor or you, have a, you used to sail or something because... <laughs> Lots of reading. <laughs> <laughs> Lee? Um, I'm not sure. I have noticed that there's a lot of um, seafaring cultures in the world of Malaz, from the Falari to the Maris to the Napans to what mm -hmm. have you. Uh, there's even uh, an epigraph uh, yeah. in Stonewielder. I think you would call that yes? Thalassocracy. <laughs> Precisely, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So Yes, uh, Athens in Greek, the... Uh, Delling League, they um, were, uh, that's the Greek term for uh, mm -hmm. rule by sea power. And that was Athens' uh, strategy. Uh, but yes, these are the cultures and that we hear about, the expansionist exploratory cultures 
um, and uh, all the way back, of course, to um, Egyptians, who you don't even think about that way, but they were. Um, they ex sent expeditions all the way around Africa and into the Red Sea, and, uh, and were um, then um, Phoenicians and Greeks uh, and the Romans. And, um, there were even uh, Roman trading forts along the west coast of India. There was a, a thriving trade back and forth across the Arabian Sea. It's all I sort of not known so much today, mm -hmm. uh, but it, if, if it's your field of history or if your field of study, you realize just how rich all of this trade was and all of these seagoing voyages and uh, ideas and goods going back and forth across uh, so many um, seas and oceans. Yeah. Um, no, um, all this, uh, you know, especially when I was reading Stone Wielder, and, you know, it starts with all the old names for all the places we already know uh, from Book of the Fallen. Like, I think it's called Mel Malasa Islands and uh, Dark Avalitel and, you know, all, all the, the way the names have evolved. Like, is this all from, you know, the uh, like actual history, like how places change their names throughout history? And is this, uh, was this like, you know, uh, the places in Malasa and how, uh, how also evolved like that? Yeah, they, all these things change and all of these things are malleable. Um, and I'll even get into that a bit in, in the new uh, in uh, Forge. Okay. Uh, okay. Things are you have um, people's uh, uh, versions or, or their interpretations, right? But then others come and they have different interpretations, <laughs> and so these can differ. Uh, and we're used to now uh, nowadays with uh, Google Maps and, and uh, scientific surveying and expeditions of, of hammering down geography. And hammering down things, but that isn't the way it used to be. There, there were uh, all sorts of different maps and, and, and interpretations of names and uh, events that uh, were always at uh, competing against each other. Mm -hmm. I believe even the uh, Toplakai name becomes like Saul Avali or something. No, Saul Alai. Sorry, what? Yeah, Saul Alai or something. It was. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might have been Steve. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Names of cultures and oh. uh, peoples change, which is true life. Even religions may change. You know, take uh, Christianity in the Norse country, where most of uh, the tradition in Scandinavia was oral, and it was only started being written down mm -hmm. when the Christians came along. And so a lot of the skalds and uh, poems and sagas that we have are Christian translations with a lot of Christian influences. So trying to decode exactly what, you know, where did those come from, it's very difficult. That's very true, yeah. And uh, a lot of the epics are, um, for example, um, they talk about this poet, Homer, but in fact, uh, these are you know, cobbled together from many different oral versions. And, and uh, so it's uh, of, over the centuries. And that's true for a, a lot of the oral traditions. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, we, there, there shouldn't be one sort of authentic version. That's too modern. If you have societies that are independent individual, they're going to have their own versions of things, and they're not going to agree. <laughs> uh, so, um, have you like uh, other than Malazan? Have you considered writing any other books like non-Malazan fiction or even non-fiction at any time? Yeah, I'm working on um, a science fiction project. Um, it's it's uh, always gets pushed back though because I'm contractually obliged to. to work on the books I've accepted the contract for. Yeah. But I'm, I'm um, very, very uh, interested in doing some um, science fiction. I would like to do that. Uh, and, you know, I work on some um, 
uh, nonfiction essays and things uh, that I'm sort of always sort of playing with. Um, but I find it difficult to do more than one major project at a time. I'm, I'm keep challenging myself to try and do that. And maybe someday I will I will manage to do that. Uh, that would be great. I hope to be able to uh, put you know, go, go on push two projects forward at the same time. Like, well, what's your favorite uh, sci-fi books? Because until Malazan, I never considered myself a fantasy reader. Like, so, um, well, there's a lot. Yes, favorite. Well, I always, when I'm put, asked, I always push um, Ian Banks uh, because yeah. I'm just, he's so good. I just, 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 well, he's passed away now. But, uh, just a fantastic author in his culture series. Yeah. Um, it's there. You could. It's sort of like, like Malaz is the equivalent in the fantasy uh, world, whereas you have his gigantic sprawling series in the science fiction genre, uh, and it's I, he did it very cleverly. We didn't even call it a series. He just he said these were books in the set in the culture. That was the name of his uh, uh, civilization that he was following. It was called the yeah. culture, uh, and all the books were set in it. Uh, and there's no sequence in particular. Just, so I would push that author. And um, the first one is uh, Consider Flibus. I, I probably mangled that pronunciation. Um, so that's one that I think is fantastic. Very, just not only the, the uh, concepts, but the writing. The writing is beautiful. Do you have anything, Lee? Uh, we brought up science fiction, but uh, what about non-fantasy? Is there anything mm-hmm. specific non-fantasy or generally non-fiction that you would uh, single out? Something about the genre? Uh, any, oh, book partic- any book in particular, a non-fantasy book. You brought up earlier that you were looking at historical texts and stuff. So. Oh, there's, well, my goodness. Um, if anyone who's w- would be really interested and has the time, I would say go take a course in, uh, at the university. In, uh, <laughs> that is true. That is fair. <laughs> and uh, have a, um, get, get set a, a syllabus and a reading, uh, a, a list of, of uh, texts go through and start working on them uh, and it's just I can't even point to one you need so many to uh, get a feel for one particular period or one particular uh, cultural tradition yeah. which of your uh, among all your books which one did you enjoy the most writing of mine yeah oh my um, hmm well I enjoyed them all um, but I did enjoy blood and bone a lot uh, I have to say yeah uh, and then a sale as well. Um, yeah. They're sort of twin. They sort of fit together in, in, in the, looking at the treatment of, of two different cultures. And so we're in, in one particular culture in Blood and Bone, and then we're sunk into another very different one in a sale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, it, it was fun for us because, you know, he's from Europe. So uh, Lee was having fun with all the Scandinavian lore in uh, a sale. But as I uh-huh. enjoyed all the <laughs> Asian yes. ones in uh, Blood and Bone, it, it was fun for us. <laughs> mm. I'm glad to hear that about a sale. Yeah, how's, that's my sort of response to Beowulf. Ah. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I will admit, I am uh, I'm, I'm from Greece, actually, so I don't have much in the way of uh, contact with the northern cultures, mostly from an academical perspective. So I've heard of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. I have not read it. I've not participated. Like, uh, delved over a lot into the skulls and the sides yeah, and the epics, but I appreciated the yeah. mention of, like the great holes and stuff. That was very nice. Yeah, yeah. Beowulf and the uh, Eddas as well. Uh, there's some of the Eddas in, in there as in in a sale as well. Um, so yeah, that was when I, I sort of 
my nod, if you will, to the sort of traditional <laughs> Northern European fantasy setting of uh, so many other series, right? The sort of traditional, um, def what used to be traditional default setting of fantasy in Northern Europe, uh, a setting with castles and forests, what snow. have you. I think, I think the difference is having snow. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's not uh, anymore. I don't want it to be anywhere. I want it to be everywhere. That's what I want. Uh, so I went and I said, well, okay, if you really want to do it that way, then let's really do it that way. And uh, so I tried to be as sort of brutally authentic as I could to that really early northern Scandinavian period where it's all dominated by blood feuds and vendettas. And it's a really bloody period. <laughs> Um, so if you wanted to write, you know, like a spin-off, uh, because you already have the PTA, uh, two more stories picked out for PTA. So apart from this, uh, would you consider like more Malazan stories? Do you have any setting in mind? or? Hmm. I don't know. No, I haven't been playing with any. Um, I think that might sort of be it. And unless Steve and I get our heads together and get each other excited again about some new area or, or new idea or new thematic that we wanted to uh, explore. Uh, I sort of decide, well, that's that. And then I meet up with him at a, we, we agree to meet at a convention or uh, we get together uh, and all of a sudden it explodes again. And then we have more ideas, put our heads together and the excitement sort of flashes again. So it's great that that's still happening uh, for us when, when we uh, manage to get together. Mm -hmm. so, uh, well, who knows? Who knows? Right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> No, because uh, so, you know we have some favorite characters here, like uh, especially Golan, uh, Principal uh, Scribethorn, and uh, Golan from Blood and Bone. Like just just the two of them going off on adventures would be you know would be something amazing yeah. to read. <laughs> so that's yeah. what I was you know I was <laughs> hoping for a spin off of those. Uh, Lee, do you have that anything? That would be nice. Yeah, that Ooh. would be nice. But I have a good yeah. question. Um, no, uh, when you uh, when Steve and you like split up the world and start writing uh, do you like check with each other uh, about the direction you're taking the book or do you have to like uh, wait and uh, you know after after writing is when you look at each other's work or how does that work actually we oh yeah we actually don't probably we probably don't consult as much as we should frankly <laughs> uh, i think maybe part of the as, as a secret of our uh, continued uh, collaboration is that we ignore each other and, and give each other huge amount of room. Mm -hmm. We don't crowd each other at all. Uh, and maybe that's the secret. You know? We each have as much room as we want. We don't it feel so far, constrained. Yeah, 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 yeah. We don't feel constrained uh, <laughs> yeah. by, by, this, okay. by this partnership. You know? I, don't, I don't feel any boundaries, and, and I, I hope that he doesn't either. Uh, but when something comes up, when I feel like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work, I'll email him, or we'll call, I'll call him, um, or we'll chat. Uh, and work things out, and or he'll email me and say, "Well, what was what? Who is that guy? And what, where did he go?" And I'll tell him, "Oh, yeah. Well, this character is sort of this is where I left this character, and this is what had just happened to them. This is their um, place emotionally and psychologically in their arc. This is where they are." And then he'll say, "Okay," and he'll pick that up. Okay, uh, Lee. Uh, on the topic of uh, consulting one another and uh, bouncing off one another, especially. Since a lot of the origins of the world are from RPGs, and uh, it's very difficult not to notice the stark difference in how you two write each other's characters. 
one of the more prevalent ones we brought up on the podcast was Dancer, and how absolutely cold and bloodthirsty he feels in Knives compared to the Book of the Fallen. And uh, we generally chalked it up to how one perceives a character versus how one plays a character. But uh, would you have anything to say in particular about this? Like, not necessarily Dancer, mm. but in general, characters that Steve would have played. Well, I hope that... Um... Each time we're looking at someone who isn't a um, point of view, like, so we're looking at him from another character, that that character's um, biases and opinions informs that, that image, right? Mm -hmm. And so if someone is looking at uh, a dancer or a character and he doesn't like, or he or she does not like that character, then that's the way that they are perceived. They're perceived as uh, arrogant or aloof or cold or withdrawn or... Um, <clears throat> or murderous, right, and bloodthirsty. So I hope that each time we're looking at them, they're a little bit different. Yeah. Because it all depends on whose point of view we're getting in, in that scene. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think basically I probably uh, write him differently than, than Steve does. Um, we're, we're both very different writers, of course, yeah. and we differ in our approach. Uh, so that's just how it is. Uh, I'm, we're we're um, sort of giving two points of view on a, on a world. Uh, actually, uh, you know, when I finished the Book of the Fallen, uh, usually the general opinion about Lassine oh is that she was quite incompetent and, you know, it, she's one of the most hated characters in the, you know, in the Book of the Fallen. And then uh, Lee actually oh has a quite spot, a soft spot for her. And he's written quite a few essays in defense of Lassine, uh, including texts from both the series. So uh, when I read Return of the Crimson Guard, my mind was completely changed. Like I went from, you know, uh, thinking that Lassie was just this uh, uh, incompetent empress to someone, you know, someone you actually care about. So uh, that that was uh, that was extremely nicely done. Like uh, at, at a point, I started thinking, uh, did you like pick up Return of the Crimson Guard? Did you like pick up this story just to redeem Lassie? Because Steve was just, you know, making her out to be this huge villain. <laughs> mm. Was it was there anything like that to to redeem her character? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the it's it, you know every there, there's always a scapegoat you know and I think that she came to be a scapegoat for a lot of things. Uh, but I hope that in my first three of um, Path of Sentency, I hope there we see that she's a um, very confident and extremely good manager uh, and one who um, elicits a loyalty from people. Uh, you know, a very she's really good at getting people to be loyal to her. So. Uh, I hope that that comes across, and, and that's the way uh, that um, it's it's easy for people who are um, sort of not in power to uh, second guess and say, "Well, I wouldn't have done it that way. That's stupid." And, and that's sort of, well, you're not in charge, okay? So they're, the person in charge is is making all the hard decisions and has a much bigger point of view than you do over all the things that are going on everywhere. So it's um, it's easy to come away with sort of personal accounts that are resentful or um, because their own little suggestions weren't followed. And so, you know, well, she's a fool not to do what I thought we should do. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're sort of, Steve and I are showing all of these different little opinions uh, among um, all of the um, officials and their take on things, which of course is very different. I feel incredibly vindicated right now. You have no idea. <laughs> Well, I don't want to give away too much, I suppose, but I think Steve would certainly agree with me and that, um, uh, that frankly, um, she was the one who ran things. 
and uh, you just could not count on Kelvin or Dancer to uh, bother with all that <laughs> stuff. You know, they didn't give it down. Uh, so she had to run everything. And, uh, and there's a lot of resentment that can be uh, come up from that. You know, here's someone bossing everyone around. Well, if she didn't, nothing would get done. So. <laughs> I know uh, nobody can see, but Lee right now is, uh, I've never seen him happier than this. <laughs> the smirk from ear to ear, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, right. while, we're, while we're on the topic, um, one thing that stood out to me especially is, you mentioned earlier about uh, how perspective changes uh, how we perceive a character. One thing I did notice is from like the ending few chapters of Return to now, present day, to until Forge of the High Mage comes out anyway, we have not seen uh, Malik Krell in any conceivable way. Like he, We've seen his influence, he's appeared vaguely in OST, talking through a scepter, but all we get to see is just how his influence warps the Empire, which I think mm-hmm. is absolutely fascinating, but also very frustrating, because I cannot draw any reasonable conclusion from the whole thing, which is, I suppose, is the point. Uh, yeah, there's, a, there's that gap. I mean, um, in... Sp- Tales of Fallen, we see him in um, Chain of Dogs. Or he comes, sort of appears as a, a representative or advisor to Formcore, mm-hmm. uh, I believe, um, <clears throat> the new fist in Seven Cities. So there's that gap. Like, you know, and, and, and in fact, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but in Forge, we, we're going to see a lot of uh, Malik. Yeah. I have not made my opinion of him uh, very secret, to be honest, uh, but... I get the feeling my opinion will be warped again regarding uh, the Gistel guy. So. Mm, well, <laughs> um, an, another um, fellow who does uh, pieces on um, Malaz on YouTube, he, he said that he sees how a lot of times Steve and I like to take characters who people think are villains and then turn them around and show their approach and how, well, they're not. They're doing what they had to do or whatever. And then maybe they're not villains after all. And that, because we have no, no good guys, no bad guys, nothing like that in, in, in our world. So he was very worried that we were going to do that to Malik and suddenly make him <laughs> <laughs> a, a, uh, you know, a good guy, quote unquote. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, he, he will, so we'll, we'll see him, but don't, don't worry too much. Uh, I think uh, we'll uh, see someone who is very, has to be quite exceptional to, to claw their way up to power the way that uh, he, he did. No, because I think Lee just wants an excuse to continue hating him because witness at least I, shot it down because he's accepted well, let, let as a good know. emperor. After you finish, yeah, after you finish Forge, t- uh, Forge, tell me, tell me what you think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, because the same thing happened with Kaler. Uh, I mean, uh, are they, uh, towards the end of Blood and Bone, Kaler, Kaler. I, I don't know. I'm Kalor. saying it wrong, probably. Yeah. Uh, so I thought uh, I, I want like he once he uh, you know. Kills, uh, so sorry, once he spares Jatal and just walks off. And I just wanted to hate him so much. But by the end of the book, I, I couldn't hate him anymore. Kaler. So, you know, it, it keeps happening. There is not like one character I can focus and say, yes, yeah. I, I, don't, I can't stand no. him anymore. These moments, I, you know, yeah, I mean, as the author, you hope that they'll ring true. You hope that they feel real and honest in those reactions and what they did. You know, you hope it doesn't, you hope it rings true with the reader. I can see how it fits with that character's place psychologically and emotionally. Uh, so it's, I, you know, I really hope that those moments ring true. Yeah. Uh, 
but like uh, i just wanted to ask you because i enjoy all the epigraphs in all your books uh, you know because each one uh, you know the, the the entire epigraphs themselves tell a completely you know a, a different narrative it has a different story and it's usually picked from one single source or so uh, asail didn't have epigraphs and lee had an inward explanation for that because it's an oral tradition type of a continent or something uh, so do you want to tell us like because I, i really started missing the epigraphs <laughs> when i started asail <laughs> um well it's a tradition it's a, uh, almost it's sort of a lost tradition and you go back to um say the uh, 1800s 1700s you have um often have these um intro- little brief introductions to each paragraph it, uh, it, they're, they're a paragraph but they're introductions to the chapter and they sort of sometimes they, all they do is they just tell you what's about to happen actually they'll say in oh. in in which so and so does so and so and meets so and so and yeah, before yeah. each chapter uh or um as what Steve was doing and what we decided to do for <clears throat> the books was to try and tell a little thing that gives a clue about the thematics of the para- of the chapter that's coming yeah and because, I, it was uh, exhausting i have to say it was very it was quite quite <laughs> so i've sort of get fall it's fallen away i'm not doing it so for um okay uh, the details of of the sentence we're, we're not doing that so much Okay. So on no, because... on the topic of a sale, I did notice that uh, a lot of the the epigraphs are done by Fisher in the chapters because you have a few characters just asking him to just compose on the spot and he just starts singing something about like coots or about how uh they're going to fall and they're not going to see tomorrow. And it's like this this is the epigraph you're looking for. These oral traditions of these people, and not just Fisher, but all the Icebloods, all the northerners or all everyone on that continent basically has some mention of an oral tradition and that is precisely where the epigraphs are sort of were missing because even in blood and bone which we brought up quite a few times most of the epigraphs are from outsiders from travelers from explorers from sailors from marooned people not from the indigenous population of the area from which we see their culture in the chapter rather than from an epigraph mm-hmm. so that was my explanation for why there are no epigraphs in the sail because you don't need them when in the chapter there is poetry and oral tradition from these individuals to tell you to give you a vague hint of what's happening mm, it's a good point especially with blood and bone and and that that's that it's the the confrontation between of course it's the literate society versus the non-literate mm-hmm. right and so in a any written tradition yes you you have the our the our the the written tradition culture story their version of things and you know, but the oral tradition is is uh, lost in in a um mm-hmm. you don't get that in that written version that's a terrible loss uh and you know I, but you have to going back you have to keep in mind that bias and keep in mind that you're getting only one side of the story that's all you're getting and you have to read between the lines to try and get the other story we we had very similar uh, type of epigraphs even in uh, stone wielder when all the people come with you know flaming swords of enlightenment and enlightened mm-hmm. their local population and things like that yeah right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wish so i could keep beating on that that's a... <laughs> <laughs> no i i, I didn't love... expect i would start missing uh, epigraphs because you know at, at some point you know you start thinking uh, you know it's just where's the where's the actual chapter where's the story but you know i i sort of got used to it probably after reading so much malasan that we need an epigraph to start a story to start a chapter <laughs> yeah uh, sorry I, i did i interrupt you no 
Um, oh no, this is great. I would like to maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you will put in some. <laughs> so I, I don't think I can. Uh, I don't know if I'll get a proper answer, but uh, Jetis from Asail is it supposed Sorry, to be um, Spinak uh, from Asail? Jetis, the the mystery Thai standy mm-hmm. uh, who washes up uh, and Fisher finds him and all that. Uh, he is supposed to be Spinak, isn't it? Like. Well, you see, this is um, originally when we gamed, um, that was um, Anna Manderas. That was uh, Rake. Uh, and, okay. and when we played the game, that's uh, how it was. And then when I was <clears throat> doing the project, I had that in mind for originally. Uh, but Steve and I met and we were talking. And um, what had been coming up in so far in Tales of um, Book of the Fallen was that uh, characters are coming back to life. From a reader's point of view, they were saying, why are all these characters coming back to life? It's, it's like a cheat. Um, and if you look carefully, though, you see that they don't really come back to life. They're, <laughs> they yeah, might reappear yeah. and have a voice, but they're ghosts or, or they are flawed. They're this pale reflections of what they used to be. And, and then they sort of go away. Um, and so um, I was worried that I would be taking away from the emotional impact of his death, of Rake's sacrifice if he came back. And so Steve and I talked about that and he was quite supportive. He said, you know, if you want to do it, do it. And it's not a problem. But I thought that oh, um, the readers would maybe not react well and they would feel that uh, all the emotion that they felt at that moment was, was being undercut. Uh, so I decided to go with a different uh, Tyson. And, uh, yes, and so I threw some clues in about his the games that he plays <clears throat> and his... Um, few other things uh, about standing in for another character, which he does, uh, and so pointing through a few clues to uh, Spinner. Yeah. No, uh, my other theory was that it was one of uh, Rake's children from Drift Avalley, because mm. some of the clues sort of line up. There was a gate, there was fighting at a gate, and uh, he's lost at sea and all that. So that, that was my second theory. Mm. Um, Could have been. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, but it was the Keftanar mentioned and the uh, and the barrow that that sort of seals. Uh, visiting the barrow at Black Coral, uh, when he mentions when Jethis mentions that he is going to go back there, and that's mm. when he sort of realized that it, it it has to be Spinnak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few a few clues. So on the topic of, Sp- yeah. of uh, Jethis, one thing I particularly liked about Jethis is that his identity is not revealed in the book, and that he goes at the very end like. My old name doesn't matter. I am Jethus. And about the title, Son of Darkness, we will see if I'm proven worthy. And uh, I really like that because a lot of people didn't. More included <laughs> of our lead because she asked. I, <laughs> I wanted it to be Spinock. I kind of felt like it was meant to be Spinock. But I realized that it didn't matter. Like the character himself knew and he wouldn't share because what I took away from this as a story is that it doesn't matter who you were, but your actions that define you in the future. And... Yes, his past standing, his uh, friendship with uh, Sir Domin or his friendship with Rake or whomever is very important, but his actions from here on are going to be what define him, punctuated perhaps by his role as the Son of Darkness, which since his people are going to need a new protector now that Rake's gone, it's his turn to now fill in the gap. And it doesn't matter who he was in the past, it matters who he is now. And it's going to be Jethus that's going to be known as the Son of Darkness, yeah. not spin up to Rob or whatever. So I quite like that, and um, I do like to be vindicated that it is a mid-spin-ock. I like I like that a lot. Um, 
I think that's but, a um, good point. Um, you're right. Um, really, what's more important is who he is now and who he will be. Uh, and um, and the moment that he sort of washes up on, on and is found in the boat, uh, he's now a new person, right? Um, and has can recreate himself. Uh, and um, that, that's something that occurs quite often, actually, in, in the series. People have the want to sh- people should see that they have the choice that they can reinvent themselves if, if they want. Uh, just one question, like uh, from uh, Orb Scepter Throne, we see Orchid, the you know, I, I, the the Thai Sandy uh, young woman, or not young woman, obviously because she's been having generations <laughs> of teachers. Uh, but yeah, she's uh, she's part Elaine. Uh, she's a daughter of an Elaine and uh, a daughter of darkness. So one of the theories is that uh, is she like Rake and uh, Silana's uh, kid or something? Is, mm-hmm. is there any like backstory to Orchid? Um, um, are we talking about the daughters of uh, Osric? Yeah. No. Uh, no. There's, no. Uh, no. No, uh, is she the the Tysandi at the quite... spawns in Our Separate Throne? Oh, oh, the So we're we're talking about the Tysandi, not yeah, uh, yeah. the the not the Tysandi. Not spite. Uh, no. Uh, well, I I don't know. It's been been a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Like one of the theories was that uh, because she's welcomed as both uh, daughter of Dark and daughter of Elaine. So. We were just wondering if you know she's mm. some rake's child or something, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps having blood from both, or having um, yeah. made that shift in power to uh, shape change into uh, being soul taken, being able to shift into dragon form. There's a, a, a different different ways to to or paths, if you will, to achieve the, that. Me? <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, I don't. I won't. Since we're on the topic of Orchid again, uh, one thing I really liked about the Spawn storyline is how it's framed through the perspective of Ansi, who can't see shit. <laughs> and um, a lot of the book is, a lot of the storyline is self-doubt and how he doesn't feel like he's doing his job and how he's going to imminently die. And it, and it very closely resembles, I think, uh, it punctuates a lot of Ansi's uh, strengths as a character. You know, that he is Ansi. He is... Um, Scared for his life constantly. He's very paranoid. He, you know, but then the perspective changes, like Corian or Orchid herself, or I don't know, his friends, the bridge burners, and they're like, "No, dude, they need you here. This guy hasn't jumped us because he's scared of you and whatnot." And uh, since we're here on uh, the spawns, another theory is that Malachi, the thief, is meant to be Cutter. Do you want to confirm mm. this, or maybe? <laughs> Again, I personally think it's better if we don't know. But yeah, I'm not going to fill in all the blanks here. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was early on, and we were you know playing with a lot of different options, and we were trying to keep keep things open for ourselves. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm I was asked at a at a uh, when Steve and I were in in France on the book tour, I was asked by one interviewer, "Can you please sort of nail down Wu for me? I mean, is he?" Is he an actually oh, yeah, yeah. brilliant <laughs> magic user genius, or is he just a buffoon who's just pretending? And I said, yeah. no, I'm not going to tell, tell you that. <laughs> it's because it's all sort of in the eye of the whole, you know, the beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So you can form, you know, decide yourself uh, how much of one thing or the other he might might be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love uh, that. So 
Yeah, well, speaking of ambiguity, I think I, I don't expect an answer here, but I'll still ask uh, who or what is uh, Edge Walker? Edge Walker. Uh, oh, my goodness. I can't give that away. Steve would get very mad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to ask. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. uh, but I think that can come out. I'll have to clear it with him first, though, so that we can talk about that because he's an important guy, and I'm not sure if Steve's finished with him yet. Um, so uh, we'll have to I'll have to settle that with with him first before we can talk more plainly about Edgewalker. And I think okay. it was Knives that was his first appearance in the chronology, right? Because that came out before mm-hmm. the Bone Hunters. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. I, so he goes I, way back. Yeah, I read Knives before I read the Bone Hunters, and I was just like, "Holy shit, who is this guy?" Um, and he appears again, and I'm just, okay, well, I can definitely see where the confusion's coming from, but, um, I really like these sort of characters, these, um, well, he describes himself as an elemental force, you know, these unknowns, these unknown unknowns, the, how, quite how powerful is he, don't know, uh, who is he, no idea, how important is he, also don't know, and it's that ambiguity that is a driving force, but also the fact that you know he's really powerful because everyone else fears him. And the perspective we view him through is like, uh, we either see him through like with uh, Merc and Sour that describe him as like the scariest motherfucker you've ever met or something, or Kiska who <laughs> like views him somewhat like in a scared way, but also, you know, she doesn't know who she's looking at because she's not a magic user like uh, Merc and Sour are, at least not, you know, not one to pursue it. And then you have... Uh, Calamity and Dancer, who just view him either as a nuisance or someone like way above their pay grade. And just, I'm gonna leave this guy right there for later, and I'm gonna deal with him sometime that isn't now because I am not prepared to deal with this. So yeah, I like again, it. I no, think I um, deal no, with. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, once again, I think it's better if we don't know. But I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave <laughs> right. it up to Steve. Yeah. No, it's great <laughs> to hear that. I, I'm I'm really I'm glad that. Um, thinking about him so i'm definitely going to take that up with steve okay so i think i think we are setting in motion something you know i may have, I may have really killed happy. the whole uh okay shit <laughs> <laughs> who knows maybe <laughs> all right well yeah more do you have anything i uh, i was reading uh bone hunters just about the time i was reading uh i think blood and bone and the one character which stood out to me as completely different is spite who is like, you know, a philosophizing uh, nice lady, <laughs> at least in Bone Hunters, who has all these uh, deep thoughts and all that. And here, she's just crawling out of the dolmens and, you know, uh, trying to grab <laughs> the cripple god's flesh for her purpose and all that. So, it was, uh, it was like a, you know, like a character whiplash. So, I just wanted to ask you, like, uh, how exact, what exactly is spite? Is she is she that, that spiteful or Steve just made her so sympathetic or... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can read um, uh, the, the first book of the uh, Carcanus uh, series, and uh, you'll, you'll find all, yeah, I mean, uh, about, all about spite. And, uh, no, Lady I, I mean, and, I've read that. So uh, yeah. the, the spite of Carcanus tracks with the spite we see in Jakaruku and all that. But, you know, the, the one in Bone Hunters is like some outlier. Like, I, I can't even recognize that, that it's spite. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, Steve and I have, yeah, sometimes we have very different takes. Uh, yeah. so I do on, think on uh, even the spite in the Bone Hunters is uh, deeply motivated by her hate of Envy. Like, I'm here because I want to carry him to kill Envy, but I'm going to play the long con. <laughs> and then until the Hounds comes along, and then they actually fight, and just like, I'm definitely going to kill Envy. And then she goes off to Jakaruku, and we see the whole thing. So, yeah, it tracks for sure. She, yeah, she 
needs more power to uh, to take on her sisters. So. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like a running joke that's like they hate one another so much that like through millennia and regardless of how much they've changed because envy in Carcanos versus envy in Memories of Ice versus envy in Orbs of the Throne is very different. They still have this one underlying goal to kill each other. Is that like the running gag between the two? Well, it's their, you know, think of their names. I mean, and perhaps they were doomed by um, Draconis. You know, yeah. perhaps he <laughs> set, this, set this mark on them by doing that. And um, in many ways, he sort of saved everyone. Because imagine if they were, if, if they were allies, imagine if they got together. I mean, it would be oh, very... That's a thing I haven't heard before. Yeah, that's a thing I haven't heard before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps he was thinking ahead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's awesome that they are rivals and you know not letting eat, uh, any of them gain power. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Exactly. They're constantly <laughs> tripping each other up. And uh, so. yeah. uh, one topic we've not touched upon at all is actually the guard and. Um, yeah, the Crimson Guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Maura, do you have anything to ask right. about the guard? I uh, no. I, those were some of my uh, favorite favorite plot lines throughout all six books i mean all five because i don't think knight of knives do we see crimson guard no i don't think so no i think uh, so yeah yeah i think it starts from from return to assail it, it was heartbreaking mm -hmm. i and especially that the, the way we see everything through shimmer's eyes is just you know it, it just uh, it was extremely nice uh, it was extremely heartbreaking to read and i sort of predicted the theory but then i got distracted by all the other stuff going on with the thaumaturgs and <laughs> and the cripple guard <laughs> So, but uh, the Telan theory was there somewhere in 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 my mind, but it was nice to have it spelled out uh, clearly in a sale. Like, I, I I don't really have a question. I just I just appreciated it so yeah. much. Well, I'm I'm, I'm uh, again I'm, I'm you know I think it's great to to hear that. I feel I feel vindicated in that. Uh, it's a yeah, it's a tragedy. Their story is a yeah. tragedy, um, but it doesn't end in defeat. You know, it just ends in um, transformation. Uh, but not for everyone. Uh, I, for them, I really had the Spartans in mind, um, a sort of an, an elite military, but in the end, a, a tragedy. You know, they they don't succeed at what they were trying to do, but they they uh, succeed in something else. So, uh, even in return, I think it was quite obvious the way they were, uh, you know, uh, the way the Telanumas were finding their whole war yeah. pointless. In hindsight, and it's very whole... obvious. I mean, mm. I, got it I missed it completely. <laughs> my first read, it's like, okay, well, so I think it's is it in Memories of Ice? Um, you have one of Steve's epigrams is uh, or preludes uh, uh, where they are hunting down a um, Jagut mother, the mm -hmm. the Talan, yeah, and uh, and it's um, they corner her and uh, slaughter her and her children or she throws her children to safety um, what she thinks is safety uh, yeah. and then after that you have a short little uh, epigram about um, from some historian talking about the, the glorious ancient wars and and you know on how um, magnificent they were and blah blah so you have this contrast between the ugly truth of uh, slaughter and then this um, ridiculous, almost, you know, almost purple prose, highfalutin glorification of what had happened in the past as justification and all the rest. So that you have that amazing contrast. And so in their story, you, you see that in, in the 
Toronimas that um, by the time we see them, um, that's all long past and, and they've really outlived their purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, the Crimson Guard have the exact same reaction when they reach Unta as uh, liberators. They, they think they are liberating the city from the from the imperial rule and you know the, the whole the whole uh, expedition is quite pointless so mm -hmm. i think that was quite you know it was, it was very parallel mm -hmm. to what we see the telanomas going through in memories yeah. of ice <laughs> yeah so good good and then you know we we see some you know in in that it's sort of the end of their their story in in, in the sale uh, but at least it ends with uh, shimmer and bars getting together so more, I was very happy about that. Yes, a tiny, how, tiny yeah. happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe you know who knows how long it will last, but uh, but yes. Oh God, <laughs> I, I'm glad you're not going back to the Crimson Guard because I can just imagine they have a happy ending and leave it there. No. Yes, that's those those little denouements of uh, yeah. tying up or, and perhaps sending them off into on a future path, which we don't know, but but they're sent off on. And their their journey continues off stage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Lee. So on the topic of the guard, since uh, it's one of the main storylines in the novels and one of my personal favorites, so one thing I singled out a lot in, uh, especially a sale, but also throughout the book, a big part, a big theme in the novels in general, from Night of Knives to a sale, seems to be grief, because you have, for instance, in Knives you have temper. In return, you have from Possum to Shimmer, even wondering about why they're here, to Kyle, to whomever, to Stonewielder, where we have Corlo, who's very poignant, and Kiska, who is searching about her master because she blames herself, to OST, where Traveler literally calls himself Grief when he's asked what his name is, to Blood and Bone, and uh, a sale where the two most poignant POVs that I saw as being, as punctuating this theme was uh, Kaz and Shimmer. And I singled these two out specifically because you have two very different, like, almost anti-diametrical explorations of grief. Because Kaz's exploration is external. We see Kaz through different POVs, from what have you, from, like, Possum to uh, Kiska, or even Traveler or Kyle, to Van Shimmer, who goes through mm -hmm. a lot of different emotions, from why are you not doing anything, to I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out without you, and then fear of her commander. And then on the contrary, you have Shimmer, who is, I, I like to oppose to oppose her with Shell, who is very hell-bent on, you know, malazans and uh, don't touch me and stuff. Even when they're chained together, they're still animosity. And then Shimmer, in return, just kind of has that switch flake of like, why are we here? What are we doing here? We were this close to removing, getting rid of this vow, which they weren't, but they didn't know that. And she comes to understand Kaz and his uh, refusal to take on contracts and just makes a truce with Shirley and leaves, right? Skinner gets us avowed and they leave. And then the cycle begins anew of what are we doing? Why are we here? What's our purpose? Do we want to find answers? Do we want answers? Do we need answers? Mm -hmm. And um, it is very, ob rather, not very obvious, but it's definitely present a lot in the sale with uh, her starting to lose emotion, her twist with bars because she wants to feel to how Kaz acts and reacts to Cowl teasing her and toying with her to her dying. But I think even beforehand, you can see a lot of this uh, exploration of grief through the the guard in general, but specifically these two, about loss, because they've died, right? Uh, about yeah. 
the loss of time that they experience about generally and there's a lot of uh, imagery of family and tribe and all of that uh Kaz I think brings up a, an, an analogy about wolves and sheep in Blood and Bone about how a wolf society is a lot more structured than we think and uh in truth even us humans are all part of a family part of yeah. a tribe and then Shimmer asks him to come return to your tribe and then after the sale like, ah ah <laughs> so I don't really realize I'm not sure quite how deep this analogy goes but I'm just really happy that I actually got to read it it's it's well yes grief I think is we're we're working with emotions and that's one of the most powerful loss and grief and and um it's a we're dealing with uh issues like um people it's a brutal time and there are hard choices that have to be made for survival uh, and and out of that comes a very strong emotion so we're trying to get get that across and then um for me that point poignancy is really one of the strongest ones uh and so i think that the so one of the governing moods or uh, for the um series any the large series at larger like uh steve's book fallen is um sort of it's elegiac uh it's looking back on a lost period and so there's that distance of time and people are trying to make sense out of what happened uh trying to understand the choices that were made uh, and that's what i think is one of the governing moods of of the, the world itself the whole series yeah yeah for me after uh, on the note of grief since we're talking about it uh one question i've seen recurring was um how did you come up with the role of the lord of tragedy because dasam is oh, how did i come up with what sorry uh dasam brave the lord of tragedy <laughs> um i think it was steve who actually originated the the, the cult um but um it's based on um mithra the old pre pre-christian uh roman cult uh which was a, a big in, among the soldiers then and he was a martial figure and uh he would ask the soldiers would ask for his protection uh but it was again about loss and um if you think of contemporary um series looking at soldiers in war especially band of brothers for example there you have loss you have friendships being broken and it's and the, the people in 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 the field are beginning to see the tragedy of their position beginning to see that they um are sort of expendable in history if you will like they might make history but they'll be ground up <clears throat> and used up in it and at the end if they survive they'll be broken uh, and missing so many who they come to love so that's December that's the lord of tragedy all of that's bound together in their response to uh, Dasam uh and we return to that of course in many many ways and, and for me right at the outset i had that right at the very beginning with knives and uh temple that character sort of sums all of that up for me uh, about the the first sword which we see in night of knives at kigetan the formation of the first sword with temper ferule and the, the the whole the structure of the first sword was this like something from your games or uh because that, that was extremely uh fun to read the way you know there's the six people along with the uh, The bodyguard, the first sword bodyguard, which are named after part of a sword. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know that. So back, uh, that back. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to ask about that. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that was part of the game. 
um, it was a, it was very, I went very different from what had actually happened <laughs> in the gaming world, <laughs> or for, uh, uh, especially with the first book of the Paths, Paths of Sanity. Uh, this is the first, well, when we get to Malaz, I guess it's uh, the second one, uh, and Wu setting up shop in Malaz, and then his um, having to establish control of the city first, and all of that, that is much more directly out of the gaming that we uh, did originally. Uh, and so later on, Temper and um, the uh, the sword, um, I think that's much more divergent from uh, from the gaming. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it blew my mind when I read the Yigatan section in Night of Knives, all the flashbacks. So that was that was extremely nice to, do, uh, to read. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I just hope that there's enough there. <laughs> <laughs> Because of course you do these things, and then years pass, and then you're you're hoping you can. There's a there's a line that it will line up, you know, and you're just hoping you won't tread on yourself, so to speak. You know, trip yourself up. Um, I'm gonna bounce off the topic. So since we're talking about Yigatan now, one thing I've noticed throughout is, depending on the book and the perspective, our perception of a claw, the claws in general, changes wildly. Like Temper despises them for obvious reasons. Then you have Possum at the POV in return, and then you have uh, Kiska, who is also a claw, but she's pretty much disillusioned with the claw entirely. And then you have uh, Topper being very sympathetic in Orbs of the Throne. And then we go back to BAB, and we have the guys being chased down by claws because they killed the face or something. And then a sail, and then you see Topper die, and we see Mal, and um, who is the claw plus, you know, the, the academy claw. So... I particularly like that, because in the Book of the Fallen, basically all we see is like a couple of claws, like Kalam, for instance, who is not even a claw anymore, and Pearl, and that's kind of it, and they're all kind of either arrogant dickish-ish, or just not very sympathetic at all, or they're nameless and they die, whereas here, it's much more nuanced, I think. It's a lot, it's a lot more, one thing, that's one thing, it's a lot, there's a lot more uh, POVs from claws, and, um, but we also get <laughs> a full story. We do see Possum and how he runs the whole thing, but we also see Kiska and why she's disillusioned, why she quit. Because uh, nepotism and competition within the Claw and how that can lead, that rampant corruption and, uh, I don't know what the word is right now, uh, the word is eluding me, but the whole factionalism within the Claw, which eventually led to the downfall of Lassie in the first place, could bring the Empire to its knees and how um, that organization could fail. But also, Mm -hmm. it's still very efficient. It's (laughs) <laughs> the covert military arm of an empire spanning three continents, and it still runs really, really well. Which is one thing you can very easily lose track of reading the Book of the Fallen, where you see a whole bunch of claws that drop like flies. Here, you see like these people can influence, can infiltrate like palaces and kill rulers before a single sword is drawn. They can end the war immediately. So I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I it's you know I, we didn't necessarily do it deliberately but but many times he'll um pick up a faucet of the world um for you know for example cause and and they'll be in there but we might not get behind the scenes mm-hmm. um and then i might be able to provide that then from my point of view and then likewise uh i'm there might be something that i have in mind that i'm not dealing too much with um but he is able to pick that up and then show i mean it, the inside of that faucet and show it in much more detail and, and flesh it out. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily all schematically set out, but yeah, it's nice no doubt. When, 
have a, an opportunity. It's nice when we have an opportunity to do that. I think all of uh, the praise to Claw should all go back to Lassine. I, I believe that's what Lee is trying to say. I'm not mm. trying. I'm not going to deny that. But I'm not going to confirm it either. Well, they are stamped in many ways in, by, by her. You know, she sort of set the template. Uh, and uh, there are those who who's serving, you know, who have power and some abuse it. So, you know, that's just how they are. You know, your character comes out if you have those opportunities. So there are some players in there who are very disreputable and not there for, for, for good you know, altruistic reasons. But then you have others who are actually, you know, loyal servants of the cause trying to do their best. So you have the full rounded experience of, of humanity. Well, uh, one thing which, you know, which uh, sort of stands out to me about your writing is all the body horrors we see, all the depictions of, uh, I, I mean, I just that one scene in uh, Stone Wielder, which, which, you know, I almost stopped reading Stone Wielder when uh, the whole scene happened with Usu and Iron Bath. I mean, uh, there was, I think, a couple of scenes before that, and uh, Lee was quite uh, disgusted at reading that. And I said, it's just like surgery. The guy is anesthetized. It doesn't matter. You know, he's just doing open heart surgery. And I was very casual about it. But, you know, <laughs> the whole thing changes when it's, you know, when it's iron bars. And I, I think I texted him saying that I, I'm just stopping the book here. I don't think I'm going to continue. <laughs> like, uh, why, why did you have to write it like, you know, that graphically? Oh, gruesome. Uh, Gruesomeness. Yes, we have to have that. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, dealing with, uh, you know, bloody things and I don't want to look away. And in fact, I want to get right into it. Uh, in, in, um, I was also criticized in for, uh, having some pretty, uh, graphic body based physicality things in uh, blood and bone where yes, we have, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. well, it's a swamp and we're starting to rot and, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to have to show that. Uh, yeah. Our, our um, Stephen, our par part of our dedication to the the greediness side of of what we think should be more of in uh, in fantasy, uh, especially when you have people yeah, running I mean, around with uh, sharp objects. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. You know, there's leather starts rotting and all their uh, armor starts rusting, and that was great. But it was the 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 whole thaumaturg experimental temples which we see that that mm -hmm. was yeah that that kind of was nauseous <laughs> honestly it was yeah, experimenting with the human body yeah 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 oh god yeah on the topic of uh, blood and bone a few things i singled out during our podcast on um, blood and bone which is coming out this Saturday, sunday in the next one i think was uh for one himatan feels like a character Himatan is extremely oppressive. It's like the antagonist of two different arcs of Golan and like Shimmer until they actually get to Jackal Vihorn. And at the very end, it's like Celeste goes and merges with Himatan, which is like, oh yeah, she is actually a character. And I think it talks to just how well it's written that essentially just a trek through the jungle with virtually no plot implications, since they're just a scapegoat and uh, a distraction, can not only be so engaging as to elicit such great characters like Thorn and Golan, but also really sell the atmosphere of the whole thing because Himatan doesn't just feel like a character Himatan feels like every character in Himatan at, at one they're not, they're not like a hive mind necessarily it's not like they think the same way but people talk about our data like oh our data this or data that in truth it just feels like the jungle is killing them itself to protect itself 
Uh, and the other thing I quite found fascinating about the Thaumaturgs and their origins, and from Stonewielder there was already this notion of uh, faith and how different faiths clash, but especially in Blood and Bone with the Shadow Womb and the, uh, the Thaumaturgs, how the smallest of differences, there is a, like a one witty quote about um, they would have discussions and debates, quote-unquote debates, about uh, which organ is necessary for life. They would argue the brain, and we would argue the heart, and it's like he pulls out his heart and eats it or something to prove a point. Yeah, and yeah. it's how the smallest of disagreements can lead to such bright animosities. Mm-hmm. And this is where my segue to the Sagula and the Morant would be. But uh, <laughs> I wonder if Mora, if Mora wants to actually get into that. We see that yeah, again no, and again no, no, no. In, in history, don't we? Right? Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Himitan, Um I was thinking about... Um, the um, the actual Himalayas. When you are traveling up into the high mountains and you're heading towards Tibet, Nepal, there are the locals would would have um, legends and stories of that you're entering in. You're at, leaving the physical realm and you're entering into the spiritual realm at those heights. And so those two worlds are overlap, and you have ma- manifestations coming out of the spirit realm and appearing in the physical realm, and you can meet them and talk to them uh, and I really wanted to try and evoke that sort of a, a environment of mythology where you might be tramping through the woods or the jungle or anywhere. It could be the desert, but you're also occupying a spiritual realm as well. And the, the spirits that are surrounding you and they can talk to you if they want or they can be friends or foes. It's um, a, another sort of older worldview. It hasn't left us entirely, of course. There's, Many societies where this is still the truth, and um, even in Bangkok, in, in Thailand, you, you find that um, <clears throat> it might be a Buddhist nation, but it also has um, many, many superstitions surrounding that. For example, amulets, and uh, you, you for for self protection and good luck, you wear an amulet with Buddha. Now, Buddha himself probably wouldn't endorse that. <laughs> People are taking the faith in the directions that they want to take it. Yeah. So I, want, I, yeah, I really I mean, love that rich life of um, spiritualism. Yeah. Because, yeah. Me? Well, might as well segue into the more intense Agula then. So uh, I brought up already, though. I brought this up. But I really liked the how in, I think it's both, um, it's both in Orbs of the Throne and in the Sail where it, there's a running trend of the Malazans just not quite getting it, not quite understanding the culture class and the enmity between peoples, where you have, in Orchard of the Throne, you have the Morath and the Sakula, in Asael you have the Planomas and the Ice Butch slash Dragon. And um, I think Timbal, the primogenitrix, puts it up to Mal, where he's like, well, it's your fault this is even happening. And you're like, what do you mean? We're just here to do business. Well, your emperor reawakened the old war, and now we're dying again. So this is your fault, really. But they're like, no, it's not. We don't know what this is. And <laughs> no, it's the, it's also, they don't understand. And it shows a lot because they are like the commoner approach, the outsider approach to this feud. Because what the Morant of the Segula war eventually devolves into is a war of attrition into annihilation. Because the two societies co-evolved so that they may survive one another. And they may destroy the other and ensure their own survival. And the Moranth evolved, so to speak, um, into taming the quarrels or making alchemical munitions, while the Sagula honed 
further their swordsmanship. And then one millennium passed, and then come along the Malazans, and like, well, guys, how about we use some of those munitions you have there? Well, that'd be nice. And um, the Morans specifically don't give them all of their munitions, and so the Malazans don't really have access to the good, quote-unquote, <laughs> munitions, if you want to call it that. And then the Morans actually use them, and they're like, holy shit, what are you people doing? What is this? This is butchery. This is slaughter. And like, no, this is for our survival. I think that's what Galleon said to Torvald. This is for our survival. We're going to destroy the city because the alternative is our destruction. This is the place to spare quarters. We don't bargain with a tyrant. You don't... It's not a mortal empire to bargain with. It's this... It's, it's his experiment, really, because he's done it, like, dozens of times. And we've learned the hard way that we don't bargain with this guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, It's all I wonder, um, set out, yeah? of course, right? In, in, in the, in, right at the very beginning with um, uh, Garden Gardens the Moon. Right, that's the siege of Pale, mm-hmm. and so it's it's one of the first, very first scenes, isn't it? And uh, in, in it's the first appearance for for uh, the series, uh, it's all sort of set out right there. These um, legacies that determine so many like the history is still present. Like these animosities might go back centuries and centuries and centuries, but they they haven't gone away. They are still with us in the present. Speaking of you know, the Malaz world at that time, so while the Malazans have arrived in that region and it's quote unquote present day, but there is a layering of history that exists there already that hasn't gone away. It still exists for the people who were living there at that time, and I, and I think that's you could almost say that that's more of a realistic approach to things. You just look out at our own world. It's exactly what what you find. People just won't let go of the past, and they, they hang on to it. And these, these ancient feuds are still driving uh, so much of what we see uh, going on today. Laura, do you have anything to add? Uh, I I sort of asked all the stuff I wanted to ask. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> we probably should save uh, a few questions for the covered, future. We covered it uh, for now. Uh, I think yeah. um, since. Our next project is probably going to be tackling Path to Ascendancy or Kirkanas, depending on how we see. Oh, just one last question, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, which one of Steve's book uh, books do you do you think is your favorite among all of Steve's books? Uh, hmm. Well, I'm I really have a, a warm spot for Gardens of the Moon because um, he and I originally did that uh, as a screenplay, and uh, scenes in it like the Fet. The, the party the, the scenes were gamed by us. Uh, so there's, I have a, like a real warm spot for gardens. Although I know a lot of readers feel that it's the, the weakest in the way, because, but then it's no, the right. first. Right? So when you start something, you're not going to be a pro at it. Yeah. You, you, you get better as you go and you sort of learn what you're doing. Uh, but I think Toll the Hounds is, is also very interesting in that it's sort of, has everything in it, you know. It's all the different aspects um, are of the world are together in Toll, and it's it's almost like a, um, a, a pressy to the larger series. Uh, and so it's, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I think I think yeah, those those were my favorites too. I mean, Gardens, as you say, because it was an introduction to the Malazan. I mean, uh, I I don't I don't know people who say things like it was uh, you know it's not so re-readable and stuff like that, but. It, it was a great book. It was a great you know, that that was the one which caught my attention. You know, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, all right. Oh. Should we start winding up? 
Yeah, I believe uh, our next project was going to be Path to Ascendancy or something thereof. So we may be back together soon, I hope. I, th I think we should, uh, if you would come back, uh, you know, after we read You're the always welcome the here, grades, maybe. for sure. <laughs> sure, after. Absolutely. It's, that's definitely possible. Um, so thanks so much for the invitation. No, thanks you know, for joining us. Great it was, uh... Although it's been so long and I, you know, I, I can't remember everything. That's Absolutely. Okay. That's okay. No, 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 no worries. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at least four of the high image, I think we'll have questions and yeah, yeah. All we'll right, see. great. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, thank you guys. Yeah, bye. In case, uh, this has been uh, this has been Lee. I have been Nora. <laughs> this has been uh, author Ian Esselman. Thank you, sir, and uh, we will see you next time. Have a good night. <laughs>